Hi folks, my name is Chris and I'm the artist and co-founder at Explorer Maps. My brother Greg and I produced our first map about 11 years ago doing the map of Montana and our list of maps has grown from one to our current tally of over 65. To learn more, please visit exploremaps.com. Welcome to The Trail Less Traveled, an adventure radio series and podcast dedicated to collecting stories and sounds from around the world in order to take you back to mankind's earliest form of entertainment, storytelling. This episode was recorded on location in Zambia in collaboration with Game Rangers International. This project was made possible due to the generous contributions of Explorer Maps. Missoula, Montana is a mecca for outdoor enthusiasts, and each week we will bring you tales of adventure from both near and far, as well as information and inspiration and a few tunes to set the mood. You can subscribe to the podcast and learn about our international outreach projects at traillesstraveled.net. And now, here's your host, international expedition guide, conservationist, and yogi, Mandela. I am sitting in Nsongwe village, located near the Zambezi River in Zambia with Bob Meyer. Bob Meyer is a former river guide and retired entrepreneur. When I first met him, he was introduced to me as Big Water Bob. He was one of the first river guides on the Zambezi. And I was so honored to run the Zambezi yesterday with him and with Kulu and to learn from the kings of the Zambezi. It's just kind of forever cherish that memory, Bob. So I wanted to start by just saying thank you. Oh, it's a pleasure being on the river with you, Mandela. <laughs> and Bob, where did you grow up and how was adventure a part of your childhood? I'm from Minnesota. Grew up in southern Minnesota. I was always something of a, of a mother's boy mama's boy growing up and uh, my mother was a school teacher as she told me once she was probably born 50 years too early because she had a real spirit of adventure in her that uh, she was never really uh, allowed to indulge in uh, she was a you know a young woman during the 1930s the depression years a school teacher taught in a one house uh, school room one through eight and then she she married my father in 1941 uh, just a few months before Pearl Harbor my dad enlisted and was stationed in Sheepshead Bay in New York City and my mother and father uh, lived in Brooklyn and that kind of gave her a taste of the outside world at the end of the war when they moved back to minnesota my mother suggested well maybe they stay in new york city but my dad was a small boy growing up on a farm in southern minnesota and that's where they decided to live and to raise me so i think if you ask where did my sense of adventure come from it came from my mother growing up in minnesota there were lots of lakes and i like to uh, i like to canoe 
My older brothers were my two heroes. They both loved to canoe. At one point, uh, I went to canoeing in northern Minnesota, and my older brother Hank told me about this idea of whitewater canoeing. So we would canoe, uh, let's see, it was the Kettle River, I think, was our favorite. And uh, it had uh, the name Hell something, Hell's Gorge or, or Hell's Corner, I forget. But uh, looking back on it, it was, you know, class one. It was uh, <laughs> really small. But while doing that, we saw some guys kayaking. And my brother Hank looked at him and said, wow, that's so cool. They're playing on the waves and the fact that my older brother thought it was cool meant it was cool. And not long after that, I saw a kayak for sale in the newspaper, and I bought it. And I started kayaking a little bit and probably took that sport about as far as you could in southern Minnesota. After college, I got in my car, and I decided I was going to go to Big Sur, California. I didn't really know what Big Sur was, but I loved the name, and uh, that's where I wanted to go. I got as far as Twin Falls, Idaho, and uh, my car broke down. I got it fixed and drove out of Twin Falls, and about 10 miles out of Twin Falls, I picked up a hitchhiker. It was a uh, ARTA, American River Touring Association guide, named Tim Mansfield and he had just finished a season of working as a raft guide on the Middle Fork of the Salmon. I proceeded to give him a ride to Vallecito, California, which was where he was going, and was invited to stay overnight at the Arda Boathouse where all the guides for the Stanislaus River stayed. I didn't become a guide right away. They invited me to stay. They said, you know, you're you're the kind of guy that does this. You might you might be a, a pretty good river guide. And they wanted me to hang around and do all the grunt gopher work and for them. And in return, they would teach me how to guide. But I passed on that. I had a date with Big Sur. But several years later, I thought about it. And I called up the uh, Angels Camp California Chamber of Commerce. And I wanted to know the name of that company that did rafting on the Stanislaus River and they gave me the name Oars Outdoor Adventure River Specialists which was the company that happened to belong to the Chamber of Commerce and uh, I called them up and asked them for a job and they said well that's not how it works you have to go to whitewater rafting school and uh, so that's what I did I wound up going to whitewater rafting school in Angels Camp California that was in 1980 it opened up a whole new world to me. I'd been searching for, I didn't seem to fit in in anything I was doing. My interests were cross-country skiing and rock climbing more than pursuing any kind of a career. But river rafting, that really hit me that I got to have this unbelievable experience of guiding a boat down the river and can you believe it? They even paid me to do it. So I wound up working for Oars the first year on the Stanislaus. The second year I worked the Stanislaus and the, the Tuolumne River, which to me was the holy grail at that point. There was nothing higher than to be a Tuolumne guide. In my 
third year of rafting, the Stanislaus was dammed up, and I had an opportunity to go to uh, Zambia and work as a, a whitewater rafting guide. I had to go to and get a map. Where is Zambia? <laughs> I learned that it was the former North Rhodesia. I knew that all of the guides that the, the company that I was working for, Sobek, had sent there in 1981 did not like being there, did not like the river, questioned whether it should be rafted or not. But I was excited to go. I was very excited to go, and I committed my life basically at that point to be a whitewater rafting guide in Zambia. Everything I did was to prepare myself for Zambia. No girlfriends, no relationships. I was going to be free to go. Came to Zambia in 1982. There were two of us, Mike Fabian and myself. We were given a whole bunch of equipment to fly over. That was always kind of the Sobek initiation right to see if you were fit to be an international guide. Could you somehow convince an airline to carry all kinds of excess baggage on your behalf, which we did. We got to uh, Lusaka Airport and transferred to a flight in Livingston. And when we told them we were with Sobek, oh, they couldn't do enough for us. They were so kind. And well, this equipment, we'll be able to get it on the plane. Yes, that's not your problem. We'll get it on the plane. We were on the flight to Livingston and I had to use the bathroom. I went back to the to the bathroom and here I saw our oars were <laughs> stacked inside the bathroom in the corner. It was the only place they could fit the oars. I arrived in Livingston. I knew that Livingston was all black people. I knew that I wasn't going to see many white faces, but the shock to me when I was actually driving into town and each and every person was black. I had not had a face-to-face -face conversation with a black person until I had been in college. I really didn't know very many black people and I had a pretty healthy prejudice is regarding what my safety would be in an environment that was all black. So they, <laughs> the vehicle pulled up to this house and, and they said, this is the Sobek house. This is where you're going to stay. And I looked and I saw all of these uh, young black men milling around the house. I go, that can't be. This can't be where I'm staying. And then one of my friends, Craig Alexander, walked through the door. We had been guides together in California. We were going to guide together in Zambia, and I knew that this must be the place. I was so happy to be there. I was so happy, but I was so apprehensive about these people that were so different from me and about whom I knew nothing. And I knew now this was going to be my life going forward. The next morning... My fellow guides, Skip Horner, Gary Lemmer, and Craig Alexander got up and went to their various jobs and duties. And as a guy who had just flown for 20-some hours to get there, I was given a day off and could just rest and get myself oriented. I was afraid to walk out the door. I was afraid to go out into this new environment. I was afraid because everybody was black, and I was not...
educated or knowledgeable about dealing with black people. That went on for about a half hour, and then I said, I can't do this, I can't live like this. And I made a deal with myself. I said, I'm going to walk out the door, I'm going to go out the street, and I'm going to explore this new place. And if I don't like it, by God, I'm going to get on the plane, and I'm going to fly back to the United States. But I'm going to go out and do this. Well, I walked out the door, walked down the street. You know, when you're in a strange place, you don't know people, you're uncomfortable, you tend to, to greet people, to show them that you're friendly. And this man walks up to me, and I said, good morning. Ah, he produced the most beautiful smile on his face. Good morning, sir, how are you? And I'm thinking, oh, sir, I mean, I'm not, I'm not a sir. <laughs> I walked farther down the street. I had three or four more encounters like this where I said hello to people, and they were obviously happy that I had greeted them and went out of their way to, sh to show me that they were happy to meet me. I went into a little place, Rama's Tea Room, and kind of checked it out, and I saw some guys playing uh, what they call mini football. We used to call it foosball in America, and... I started talking to a few people and who are you, what are you doing, da 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 and you know, 15, 20 minutes into my new adventure, the thought of getting on a plane and going anywhere was ancient history. I spent the rest of the day, I met people, I talked to people, I asked questions, I was asked a lot of questions and I was really comfortable. And then I started to meet these young men that hung around the house that I had been so afraid of. And they were people like Simon Sakala and Ali Kulubanda and uh, Sandy Nguenya. And all they wanted to do was be my friend and talk to me and ask me questions and share. And uh, I was the junior guy. Skip would go off to do his duties, and Craig had his duties to take care of. Gary Lemmer was usually the guy that had to go over to Zimbabwe and try to smuggle food back, and my job was to patch boats and clean Dutch ovens and repair black bags. In other words, hang around the warehouse and do the grunt work. I wound up hanging out with, with all of these young Zambian men, and... It was so exciting. It was just so invigorating. They started to teach me the language. They started to explain the area around them. They explained Livingston. They explained Africa. They explained themselves. And I was at home. I was just really, really excited to be in Zambia. And here we are at your home in Zambia. We're recording right now in, in Songwe Village. This is the home of Bob and Bridget Meyer. And we're sitting on the most beautiful patio that's shaded next to the river. And when we come back, I definitely have a lot of questions for Bob, including how did he get the name Big Water oh, no. Bob? <laughs> but Bob, it's now time for a song. So is there a song that comes to mind that kind of reminds you of your early years that you'd be willing to share? The only song that comes to mind is the song that my wife sang. 
I'm kind of well known here for singing this song. It usually produces a good laugh, but people keep asking me to do it, so. Maisie, Maisie, Mulena Ka, Kamso, Nashwa, Mulena Ka, Eya, Kamundingli, and Dingli, Eya, Kamutekula, Mema, Eya, Kamundingli, and Dingli, Eya, Kamutekula, Mema. Thank you. Mezi mezi mulena ka kamso na shwa mulena ka Mezi mezi mulena ka kamso na shwa mulena ka Eya kamdingili ndingili Eya kamtekula mema Eya kamdingili ndingili Eya kamtekula mema I'm sitting in Nsongwe village with Bob Meyer and he is a former river guide and retired entrepreneur. When I met him, he was introduced to me as Big Water Bob. And so, Bob, you are most certainly a legend on the Zambezi River, and I would love to hear about how you got the name Big Water Bob, and I would love to hear about the Zambezi from you. Well, <laughs> I, I was very fortunate to be dubbed Big Water Bob. I was in training with OARS oars and I'd never even seen a whitewater raft before I started the school. I was hopeless. I couldn't do anything right. I was trying so hard and my instructor, Kim Johnson, who was an excellent kayaker and rafter, couldn't help laughing at the paradox of how hard I was trying and how terrible I was. And so she dubbed me the name Big Water Bob. It caught on right away. Everyone started calling me Big Water Bob. But uh, after a while, people didn't really know the origin of the name, and they assumed that I had gotten this name Big Water Bob by some tremendous feat of accomplishment on the river. And uh, people began to expect big things from me. And... As my friend Liz Hyman said, you know, you give a guy a name like Big Water Bob and then look what happens. I kind of grew into it. I've never had much fear on the river. I don't know why. I'm a very good swimmer, but uh, I've always been attracted to the excitement of the difficult rapids. If I'm going down a river in a group of five boats, I always wanted to be the first boat because I didn't want to be prejudiced by what other people did. When I got to Zambia, there were four or five of us showed up at the same time. Mike Fayberry, Craig Alexander, Gary Lemmer, the various uh, the Africans were all told, yeah, these guys are, all these guys are coming. And also there's this guy, Big Water Bob. So you can imagine which name they remembered out of that group. I was the, the one that stuck out. And uh, so the name very quickly translated over to Zambia. When I saw the Zambezi River, I was completely overwhelmed as I, I think you were yesterday. It was instant love. I absolutely adored this river. I adored everything about it. I love Zambia. I love the smell. I love the sights. I love the sounds. Everything was new and different. And of course, the Zambezi is a, a very unique river. 
we were on our, our first day was a training day. All of the new guides were put into one boat and we went down the river. We got to rapid number five, which we would line, uh, attach a rope to the boat and let it kind of drift through the, the rapid and then pull it back to shore. And Skip Horner said, you know, <laughs> you guys are trainees, so we're kind of expendable, I guess. He said, if, if somebody wants to run this, there is a line through it. And uh, when he said that, my heart jumped. I just, I was ready to kill to run that rapid. And my greatest fear was that one of these other guys who had every bit as much of a right to run the rapid as I did would would want to run it and of course when Skip said that all eyes looked at me and Mike Ferryberry said I'll shoot a roll of film motor drive if you run it and so I looked at the other guys you want to come with me no 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 there were some uh, Zambian uh, porters aka high siders there and I looked to them and uh, Simon Sakala and Alik Banda said, yeah, they would run it with me. There was Sandy Nguenya said he wanted to go with me, and I was able to get one other guy, Kayata Mbonge, all of men who are, played strong roles in my life after that. I wanted six. I could only get four. And Skip said, go ahead and run it. And we scouted it, and Skip coached me, you know, this is how Jim Slade did it, and... Uh, you do not want to go over this green pour over rock and yeah we all agreed boy I did not want to go over the green pour over rock well subsequently as I ran it I misjudged the strength of the current right above the drop and went over the big green pour over rock and anyway Mike Fabery got a fabulous set of photos from it uh, nobody was hurt thank God and due to the goodness of rowing bucket boats in they, those days, the boat filled up with water and, and flushed out. After that, never again did I ever go over that pour over. I, I learned my lesson on that first trip. Later, we continued uh, after I'd shown everybody how not to run the rapid. Uh, Sobek continued to run trips and we would line number five. And then there was a seven day trip came up and the three main guides, Skip, Craig Alexander, and Gary Lemmer, went on the seven-day trip. And I'd only been there about two weeks, but I was put in charge. And the new guy, uh, Bob Heyman, we used to call him Bald Bob, he showed up. We were the two guides, and we were running one-day trips. The first day we went down, we lined our boats around number five. I lost control of my boat for a little bit. It was a very dangerous situation. Everything turned out okay, but I resolved. I said, I will never lie in a boat around this rapid again. We came down the next day, and I decided I was going to run it. Bob decided he would line his boat. So he lined his boat first, and then I ran it, and just the perfect sweet run, just like Jim Slade on the exploratory, hit the 10 quatcher tightrope right through the next day we came down together and Bob and I both ran five perfect runs. When the seven day trip finished, the other guys came back. We're all doing a one day trip and we get to number five and I told Skip, we don't line here anymore, we run it. 
And those guys were, well, okay, show us how. So Bob and I went through first, had perfect runs, and the rest of the, the guys followed through. And to the best of my knowledge, no one has ever tried to line a boat around number five ever since. I'll just say that I just flipped in number five. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> the catcher's mitt. Sure. Yeah. Well, that's common. You, number five, you can have a perfect run and flip. There's rapids like that. What's nice, though, is there's a pool drop. Like, yeah. by the time we flipped, it was it was calm and quick recovery. So right. That's one of the things I love about this river. I went on a, a rafting trip with my then-girlfriend, now-wife, Bridget. Invited her on the river, and uh, we went into number five and flipped. All of us that were in the boat, we got really good at reflipping boats. Mm-hmm. We were on that boat and lickety split, flipped it over, everybody back in the boat, and Bridget was trying to swim towards shore, and uh, we are yelling at her, Bridget, where are you trying to go? You know, we're over here. We went and grabbed her, and so she's had the, the flip in five, and I think she did pretty well. <laughs> Let's talk about the geology and the mythology with the Zambezi as well. Okay. It's black basalt rock, a volcanic rock. On the upper top, uh, there are limestone deposits. It's the most beautiful black rock uh, you can imagine. Uh, when the sun beats on it, it, it sucks up the heat and it gets it gets pretty hot. When you run rapids, one through... 10 that's the seven gorges each one of those gorge at one time was a victoria falls there is currently the new victoria falls is being carved away so if we can come back in 10 or 20,000 years we can see how that turned out when you talk about the mythology mythology i guess centers around nyamanyami the god of the zambezi the British tried to build Lake Kariba Dam back in the mid-1950s. Massive floods came and wiped the project out and put it right back. If I have my history correct, it repeated a year later. And uh, it was only on the third attempt that they managed to get the dam built. Nyamanyami is believed to have the head of a crocodile and the body of a serpent. It's a fairly benign god it's not known to attack but it it does play tricks on people there are many people who have claimed to see nyamanyami that's usually considered a lucky thing a sighting of nyamanyami is usually followed by catching lots of fish the nyamanyami goes right up to the base of the victoria falls it's been seen there I myself have never seen it. My own reflection was I had a lot of trouble. I used to go on uh, seven-day rafting trips, and I would constantly flip in Rapid 18, which was a bummer because it was all full of all the gear for the trip. And I think it happened to me like three trips in a row. I was commiserating in in a bar with some Zambian men, and they told me, oh, you know, you're not uh, approaching Nyamanyami correctly. said, when you get to the top of the rapid, you need to show courtesy to the river god. And they said, the way you do that is you clap your hands 
and then you you say excuse me and the word excuse me in Lozi language is uniswelele so I would clap my hands at the top of the rapid and repeat three times uniswelele 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 I also named my boat Unisuelele. And uh, to this day, I've never flipped a boat in uh, number 18. It, and I shared my secret with the other guides, and uh, everyone kind of came up with their own version of, of that. But uh, like they say, uh, people don't really believe in Nyama Nyami. They're not sure if it's true or not. But you'll never find a Zambezi guide that doesn't have some form of nyama nyami on him when, or her when they raft the river. Let's talk about the rapids a little bit. So you mentioned rapid number 18 and the Zambezi is one of the first rivers I've encountered where the rapids are numbered. Right. So it sounds like they have a number and a couple of different names. Sure. When the first guys came and ran in 1981, the first Sobek team came and ran the river. Uh, it was a film project, and they were completely overwhelmed by the river. And there really wasn't much thought to labeling names on the rapids. They were coming one after another, and so they just, to differentiate, they gave them numbers. The first rapid to get a name that I'm aware of was number 18, which they called High C. It now has a much better name. They call it Oblivion, which I think is much more appropriate. There was an attempt to name number 5 the 10 Quatsch a tightrope, but it just never caught on. As part of the first permanent group of guides that were stationed in Zambia that ran the river day after day, we just thought that the fact that the big rapids were so numerous they had to get numbers rather than names was just so cool and the numbers when someone said number five boy that evokes even now that evokes a picture in my mind it doesn't need to have a name number seven that makes my stomach queasy it it doesn't need a, a name some of the rapids further down did get names ghost rider which was where Richard Bangs sent his boat through empty after watching all of his best guides flip, decided he'd saved the trouble and kicked his boat off and walked down the river. And then when they saw the boat coming through empty, that was the name Ghost Rider. Deep Throat was named right from the beginning. Deep Throat, all the water smashes up against the rock wall and then there's a huge uh, whirlpool. Again, uh, boats were flipping there, but the deep throat was going down the into the whirlpool. I saw Gary Lemmer do about a 30-second underwater swim there. We were screaming out loud, Gary, come up, come up. When he did, he was barely conscious. So we all knew deep throat meant a, a big uh, plunge underwater. I have kayaked the Zambezi down there, but I always picked my boat out and walked around Deep Throat. That's how the names came. We just, we thought the numbers were really cool. That's the voice of Bob Meyer, AKA Big Water Bob. He is a former river guide and retired entrepreneur. We're here at his home in Nsongwe village, just 
what? How far are we from the Zambezi River right now? We're about a kilometer. Hmm. We're about a kilometer from it. We've got uh, a very nice trail that we can walk right out of here. It follows the Nsongwe Gorge down to the, the Zambezi. It goes through the uh, Mosiotunya National Park, which is our our neighbor a couple of hundred yards down downstream here. Very, very special area. There are herds of Cape Buffalo. There are troops of baboons, python snake, uh, eland. Historically, this was an area that the, the lions liked to come to. My late father-in-law was a very successful cattle herder, and he had a house in the village. We're about a kilometer from the center of the village. We're kind of on the edge out here. These cows were causing trouble. You had too many cows, so the chief came and said he would give him all this property out here for his cows to graze if he would please move out of the village. So he moved here next to this pond, what we call Crocodile Pond, uh, because it was a, a source of water. His wives could dip water out and grow their gardens right here, irrigate their gardens. So he came here in 1965. Taking care of cows was serious business then. There were lions here. Since then, the, you know, the lions are, are long gone, but every two or three years, a lion will come through here. They have a case, one swam across the Zambezi from, from Zimbabwe from Victoria Falls National Park, which has lions in it. And uh, several have walked overland from Kafui National Park, which is 200 miles away from here. Mm -hmm. You know, in their instinctual memories, they remember this is their place. The other animal that loved to come here was the hippopotamus. Mother hippopotamuses would come here to the, the ponds that are further down the Songwe River and it was a safe place for them to raise their young. They were concerned about all the crocodiles in the Zambezi. Since the Songwe, a lot of the pools, when they were drying up, the hippos stopped coming. But two years ago, we had a, a mama hippo and her baby show up here, and only to be disappointed that the, the nice pool that she was, was somehow buried in her memory wasn't there. Mm -hmm. That's part of what our restoration project here to restore the Songwe River is about. One of the goals is that we want to see the hippos come back with their young to raise them here. Bob, when we come back, I want to talk to you more about Nsongwe Village and your life here. But it's now time for a song. And your wife is sitting under the shade of the trees, a picturesque setting, I wish... <laughs> The people listening could see her now. And I was just wondering maybe if she'd be willing to come on over because you mentioned that when you think of music, you think of your wife and her voice. That's true. I love it when my wife sings. Her voice pierces right through me, and I always stop whatever I'm doing when she decides that she wants to sing. The song I want to sing is, it's a welcoming song for visitors. So we are very grateful and we are very happy that Mandela has come all the way from United States to visit us in Songwe village. We are honored. 
So this is a welcome song for you. Da sekerela benzu bangu, benzu bangu ndindi ba mandela benzu bangu, benzu bangu ndindi da sekerela benzu bangu, benzu bangu ndindi ba mandela benzu bangu, benzu bangu ndindi da sekerela benzu bangu, benzu bangu ndi bonsa ba benzu bangu, benzu bangu ndindi da sekerela benzu bangu. Hi folks, my name is Chris and I'm the artist and co-founder at Explorer Maps. My brother Greg and I produced our first map about 11 years ago doing the map of Montana and our list of maps has grown from one to our current tally of over 65. I've been drawing and painting for a long, long time, starting as an advertising illustrator in the 80s back in Canada to exhibiting wildlife and landscape oil paintings in East Africa through the 1990s. But I find that what I'm doing now with Explorer is the most rewarding project I've ever been involved with, mostly because it's a family business, and helping to grow that business gives me a real sense of purpose. We've even got our daughter Becca in on the action, making short documentaries and videos. She's just done one of Costa Rica. And my wife Ness will be finding new markets for our Explorer products when we move back to Kenya in the summer. So that'll be great fun. On the topic of connecting people in place... Hopefully these maps bring back memories of great holidays and fun with family and friends. And it makes people want to get out there and connect or reconnect with these places. Do I have a favorite map? I definitely do not have a favorite map. They're all my favorites because they're like my children. I love them all equally. How's that for a diplomatic answer? Anyway, thanks for listening. To learn more, please visit exploremaps.com. And be sure to use promo code MANDELA for a discount. We are sitting not too far from the Zambezi River in the shade in in Songwe village. And I'm speaking with Bob Meyer. He is a former river guide and retired entrepreneur. He was one of the first guides on the Zambezi in the early 80s. That's where he got the nickname Big Water Bob. And Bob, I would like to talk to you now about some of the experiences that you had in your early years living here and what you and your wife have built here. And just from this perspective of someone who was born in southern Minnesota, but now your heart and your time and your energy and your family and your love is being put into Nsongwe Village here in Zambia. I have a long association with this village. Uh, many of the uh, guys that worked as porters or highsiders carrying boats in and out of the gorge of the Zambezi were, were from this village. I made a lot of friends that worked at Rainbow Lodge where I used to live right on the Zambezi. And uh, so I knew quite a few people here before I married my wife. Surprisingly, I found out that quite a few of them were my longtime friends or now actually in-laws of mine. I've always liked this village. Uh, I've always been very, very comfortable here. I've always tried to dig deeper to learn more about Zambia than uh, maybe the average person would. For years, my wife and I operated a, a business where we came to Zambia. We bought baskets and we took them back to the United States and, and wholesaled them to the furniture and home design industry. Uh, 
every year for I don't know how many years, we spent Christmas here in, in Songwe. It became a family tradition. Every year I was spending three to four months in Zambia. So I really, boy, I, I knew everything about Zambia. I, Zambia, I got it down. And then in 2011, my mother-in-law died and Bridget and I decided that we would move back to the village here in Songwe and would live here. And that's when I was here permanently. That's when I began to learn just how little I actually knew and uh, how much there was out there for me to learn. In a word, I was naive. Even though I had 25 years experience being here in Africa, being here in this village, but to actually live here was different. And I was accepted because of my friendships. I was accepted because I've got a pretty good track record here of doing good, helping people. When I was the manager of Sobek, we used to combine with Chief Makuni on projects. And I always, if I saw a way that I could help out people here while at the same time accomplishing the goals that the company I worked for, Sobek, had, I would try to do that. I'm always a person that tried to kill two birds with with one stone. I had a good reputation here. I was quite accepted. People were happy that I came here, but I really didn't know a whole lot about what was going on. I was going to come in here and be a really successful commercial farmer. I had a bunch of seed money to invest. I had worked on a farm as a, as a young boy in Minnesota, baling hay and milking cows. I thought I had a pretty good background. I did my research on crops and everything. And boy, I, I came in the first year and just fell flat on my face. And nothing I tried worked. Tried to improve uh, with the second year. And uh, I wanted to grow orchards. I came and planted trees and the cows would come in and stomp them down and eat them and goats would come in and eat the plants and I would get angry why can't people control their cows I really had to learn to accept certain things uh, that Zambia is a very very tolerant place and people have very short memories here especially regarding something that bad somebody did to them. They tend to forgive and forget way more than what we ever expect in the United States. I had to learn to accept a lot of, of the problems that animals came. Cattle are integral to the culture here. They're so much more important than just a source of food or um, manure for fertilizer or things like that. They're very much status and they're very much involved in security. Zambians don't kill cows for meat. People in Songwe kill a cow when when they are desperate for money. Bridget's father would kill a cow to send her off to boarding school. I had to learn to kind of work around cows. You plant your... I learned to plant things a lot closer to home. I had to learn to control my anger. I had to learn to accept new things. I had to be tolerant. I came to realize that I was 
pretty much far and away the richest man in this community. Although I really didn't have very much money at all by American standards, I was probably at about a poverty level for an American. But that made me a pretty rich man here in Zambia. And uh, I learned that I had to share. When people were in trouble, I had to give them some of my money. I had to give them some of my time. Later, when we bought a car, uh, I learned that that vehicle had to be available for emergency runs to the hospital. That vehicle needed to be available to pick bodies up from the morgue and bring them back to the village for, for funerals. Of course, as I lived here a few years, I got to know everybody. I spent a short stint as a substitute teacher, so I got to learn the names of the kids, and then I got to know their parents, and I really got involved in the village. It was wonderful. I felt like I belonged. I felt like I was accepted. When I first came, people would yell out, Mzungu, especially children, or actually here they say Mukua, meaning white man. It certainly was not derogatory or threatening, but it was not personal in any way. And over time, everyone started calling me Bob or Uncle Bob. And I felt good about that. I felt accepted. I'm a white American. I love Africa. I love being here. In many ways, I relate to being African. But I'm not an African. I will never be an African. Cannot be an African. And I I probably want to retain too much of who I am to ever be that. But I want to be accepted and I, I want to be involved and I want to help people. And I've learned. I've, I saw my dear friend Mishik die of a heart attack. And my wife told me and we got up and went over to his house. And I sat there with a group of men and we were all stunned, absolutely stunned that this magnificent man had died. The women went inside and I started hearing crying and wailing and tears and of course that's what women do in Zambia they don't hold it in they blow it out when they're feeling grief they grieve they grieve publicly and they grieve hard and loud they get it out of their system but when I heard my wife wailing and crying the sound of that went right through me and I was sitting outside with the men and they would talk to me and, you know, small, well, how's, how's your maze doing this year? And small talk, I just couldn't, I couldn't make small talk. But after a while, I realized what they're doing. You're being calm, you're being strong, and you're sharing the sense of the loss. And this is, you shed your discomfort by making small talk. And it all started to make more sense to me. And I, I felt really drawn into the community because of of that experience. Since then, we've gotten involved in trying to make things better in Songwe. We got involved in, first of all, fixing the road. Nobody wanted to come out here because the road was too bad. It got really difficult. It It got so bad that the trucks that deliver beer wouldn't come here. So we came up with a plan that... Uh, Maybe we would 
try and fix the road. We had a lot of men that relied on pick-me-up labor, temporary labor, and uh, we had picks and shovels. Maybe we could go out and just work by hand and fix the road. And uh, we contracted out like a hundred men to do 50 meters of road, and uh, the project really turned out well. And you know, when the people themselves were out there doing the actual work, there was pride in the work they did. We got involved with the school. You know, and talking to people said there's a real need for a night school. The parents want to have edu- enough education so they can help their children with their homework. And they said, right now the kids come home and they talk about things and they don't know what's going on and it's causing a a division between the generations. And she thought a night school is a way of bringing families closer together and it was filling a need that the people in the community felt. So we worked on that idea for a while. Unfortunately, COVID came along and any kinds of group gatherings were pretty heavily frowned upon. But we did organize classes and we did organize classes for adults. Those classes never stopped or never failed because of lack of attendance. It was that there were so many people that were so hungry to learn. And again, that was a it was a chance for me to get closer to the people uh, by trying to teach adults uh, English is what they wanted to learn. Other than that, we share the concern of elephants. Here in Songwe, we see elephants from a, a different side of the perspective. Uh, I think people love and admire elephants, but the bottom line is they're afraid of them. And the reason that people fear elephants is that five to ten people in this Makuni kingdom get killed every year by elephants, and crops get destroyed. And uh, in my mind, a lot of it is quite needless. There are responses that could be done to elephants, and that doesn't mean shooting them or... What I discovered and what we did here is if you could get a lot of people together and we'd go out and the elephants would come. I mean, as we sit here, Mandela, if you can imagine, just 50 feet away, just on the other side of the river, we used to have elephants roaming, tearing up all of the things we had planted on that side. And we came down here and it actually became kind of a party. I was able to get about 20 people were banging on pots and pans, I had my pistol, I'm shooting it in the air, which had really very little effect on the elephants. We threw some fireworks at them, but we would manage to drive them back 20, 30 yards, and we started fires on the other side and pushed them back a little further, and eventually they just left. That took us about an hour to do that, but you know, the next time the elephants came, we came out, There were only five or ten people, and the elephants left right away. And since then, it hasn't taken that much effort to chase the elephants off. I don't think we scare them off. I just think it's too much of a hassle, and we just take all the joy out of coming and ripping up our trees and everything that they leave us. They've come back since then a few times, but this farm, uh, we really don't have trouble with elephants 
I've tried to talk to people in the village. They're so afraid. Nobody wants to go out. I've discussed, and, and we really want to work more with people on this idea of a community response when the elephants come. Bob, thank you so much for your time and energy joining me on the trail as traveled. It was my pleasure, Mandela. It was a complete pleasure having you here with us. You know that you're always welcome to come back here. Thank you. That means a lot to me. And also, thanks for taking me under your wing and showing me the lines on the Zambezi. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> what song would you like to end your show with? My favorite music by far is the music that my wife sings, so if it would please me greatly if, uh, if you could have her sing a song and, and maybe use that. You've been listening to The Trail Less Traveled, The Trail 1033's locally harvested adventure radio series. The show premieres every Sunday night at 6 Mountain Time, and you can stream it live online at trail1033.com. Remember, the show is also a podcast, available wherever you get your podcasts. You can learn more and follow as we record around the world by visiting traillesstraveled.net. I want to take a moment to acknowledge the generous financial contributions from Explore Maps, towards this project in Zambia. Explore Maps is a small family business based in Missoula, Montana. And we are working together to connect people and place. You can learn more by visiting exploremaps.com. And remember to use promo code MANDELA for a discount. Explore Maps donates a percentage of every sale to conservation efforts around the world. So this holiday season, please consider a gift that gives back. Since they started, Explore Maps has donated over $150,000 to conservation efforts worldwide. That's it for this week's adventure, my friends in Missoula and around the world. But until next week, please remember, conservation is not a spectator sport. Living in Missoula is a privilege. With privilege comes responsibility. Get informed and get engaged. Speak up on behalf of wildlife and wild places.
If you think you're too small to make a difference, you've never spent the night with a mosquito. <laughs>